morning. Hey, thanks for being here today in the South Hills, and I want to welcome our campuses in Washington and Robinson and Ross Straver, Wilkinsburg and DeBerry, uh, and all you joining us online. Uh, one more time, I want to remind you guys of something we've been asking you to be a part of the last few weeks, which is a survey that's in your program this morning at every campus. And last week to, to do this, if you are able to help, this is a communications survey. Simple, five minutes helps us understand how we can be more efficient and effective in communicating to you, our congregation, as that's part of our strategic planning process is getting better in our communication to you all. So if you can, if you have not, uh, I'll ask you to fill that out uh, today before you leave. So we have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. And uh, I was working with our five and three-year-old this weekend doing uh, Mother's Day cards, and uh, that was fun, as you guys know. (laughs) You never know what will come out of your son or daughter's mouth, as they're just, they're writing whatever they want to mom. And I was thinking, what are some classic Mother's Day cards? So let me share a few that I found uh, for you this morning to kick off. This first one makes sense for the next gen that is experiencing technology. I love you, Mom, because you give me hugs and kisses and you watch Netflix with me and you tuck me in at night. Uh, This one, card number two, is honest and might be a punch to the gut a little bit. Thank you, Mom, for being wonderful, caring, and not making making your meatloaf anymore. (laughs) Oh, man. Honesty of children. Uh, maybe you all have a five-year-old like mine who kind of just writes as they're thinking, okay? Here's a good one. Dear mom, I may not have the best writing or the best talking, and I'm kind of weird. <laughs> P.S. Sorry, my crayon broke, and you can see the color changes. <laughs> and oops, I did it again. I played with your heart. But um, but um, but um, writes that out. But yeah, I get off track pretty easily, and I'm sorry this color is ugly, and even though I'm kind of different, is that spelled right? I still get all my good traits from you. So thanks for that. I love you a lot. And there's a line up to the heart where the yellow part is, and it says, that's not pink. I don't know why they said that, but... And then sometimes it's the simple, simple message of a child that grabs you. You are a special mom because you say, I love you, and I say, I love you more, and you say, impossible. Uh, We want to say happy Mother's Day to every mom across all our campuses, and uh, let's open up in prayer as we ask God to lead us in his word. And we know sometimes Mother's Day is is hard for some. Uh, So we want to pray for all those who are experiencing different emotions today on Mother's Day. Father, we thank you for today. Uh, God, as we say here, ministry is not a profession. It is the responsibility of every believer in Jesus Christ. And I can think of no greater ministry than motherhood. God, we thank you for the moms at the Bible Chapel. We're thankful for those who are raising their children up in the fear and in the knowledge and the love of God. And God, we pray for our moms that you would equip them and that we as the church would support them. And God, we pray for those today across all our campuses where Mother's Day this year is a hard day. Maybe they lost their mom this year. Maybe they long to be a mom. God, you know where every person is at. So God, I pray today that you would just comfort us all 
And uh, God, as now as we turn our attention to your word, as always, we have nothing to say unless it comes from you. So I pray the words that come out of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be honoring and pleasing to you, O God. In Christ's name, amen. So if you've been with us since February, we've been traveling through this letter of First John. And as I said last week, we're taking a break in the month of May to look at John's two shorter letters, the two shortest books in all of the Bible, 2nd and 3rd John. The theme of both of these letters is a phrase that he mentions in both, which is walking in the truth. That word walk is the rich Greek word peripateo. It means to regulate one's life. It means to live. John found no greater joy than knowing the church was filled with a group of people who truly lived out in obedience to God's word. These two letters are personal. They're theologically rich. And they're just as impactful today and authoritative today as they were 2,000 years ago. In 2 John, which we're going to complete today, and we started last week, he's writing to a local church. Think small c, like he's writing to the Bible chapel. He's writing to this local church, most likely around Ephesus, where he resided at the time. And in the first six verses, he drills down on what it looks like for a church to love one another in truth. Last week, we saw this. A church who loves one another in truth has the commitment of every believer to be in God's word. The best way we can love one another is to know his word has the commitment of every believer to walk in the full counsel of God's word. That means our interactions with one another flows through God who is love. A a church who loves one another in truth is committed to never allow culture to redefine truth and love. And we said when this happens, a church who loves one another in truth is just simply expressing what we have already experienced in Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to conclude 2 John as he addresses a serious issue of his day, false doctrine. Last week was all about loving one another in truth. This week is all about protecting that truth. And in verses 7 through 11, he gives these rich, challenging words on what it looks like for a church to be those who take it serious when it comes to protecting the word of God. So we're going to break these verses down in detail, and then we're going to walk away at the end today with three applications for us as a local church. So here we go. Look at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. The ESV, which I'm using this morning, uses the word for to begin this verse. Uh, The NIV says, I say this because. He's connecting this love, one of truth in the beginning of the letter to protect the truth in the second part of his letter. Basically, if a church is truly loving one another through God's word, you're in great position, great shape now to protect that truth when it comes under attack. This word deceiver means one who leads astray. 
And John says these deceivers of his day were trying to lead people astray through their unified unbelief and rejection of Jesus' incarnation. That the eternal Son of God could actually take on flesh and become man. This threat was so serious, we see at the end of the letter, John says he longs to be with this church. But it was too serious of a matter to wait, so he wrote this letter with urgency. In John's day, Gnosticism was widespread around Ephesus. It advocated a dualism between matter and spirit. Gnostics assert that matter is inherently evil and the spirit realm is good. Therefore, to them, Jesus in his pre-incarnate state as the eternal God who is spirit could never become man because matter, material, is evil. John knows that that heresy cuts straight to the heart of the gospel, cuts straight to the heart of Christianity, and he wastes no time addressing it in this letter. Scripture is clear. Because of the fall of man since Genesis chapter 3, every human being is born into sin. And sin carries the penalty of death, not just physical death, but spiritual death. Spiritual separation from God. The only way, according to Scripture, for reconciliation with God is from shed blood. Scripture says that sin requires death as a payment. Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, we see that because of this need of shed blood, God instituted the system of substitutionary sacrifices with animals. However, he shows this, this was just a temporary solution. Animals could never permanently take away sin, hence the need every year for God's people to repeat these sacrifices. Hebrews 10, 3 and 4, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, a permanent and final sacrifice for sin had to be a human being. And that human being had to be sinless and perfect. Therefore, the only way for that to happen is to have a fully God, fully man savior to be that perfect sacrifice. And that's why God sent his son who took on flesh born of the Holy Spirit, Jesus lived the sinless life that you and I could never live. And he is the only one to be the perfect and final sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 2.17 says, for that reason, he had to be made like them. He had to take on flesh, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement, final payment for the sins of the people. And scripture says, when Jesus took on flesh, not once did he ever cease to be fully God. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
And since his incarnation, Jesus has never ceased to be human. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. John says those who deny this truth are deceivers and the Antichrist. That word Antichrist means against Christ or in place of Christ. John here is not referring to the final world ruler we read about in Scripture that will one day oppose Christ before his return. He's just simply saying these individuals are against Jesus and the work of his church. And he tells this local body, you must take this seriously. When it comes to protecting God's truth, take this seriously. So look at verse 8. John says, watch yourselves. This word means to guard, be on constant guard. He's saying, church, if you're complacent and letting false doctrine creep into your body, that is a dangerous place to be. He says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Most Greek translations use the first person plural we in lieu of the first person singular here, you. So John's saying what we may not, we may not lose what we have worked for. He's grouping himself in. He's talking to believers and he says, what is at risk is this thing right here, a full reward. This is a debated verse. What does John mean? That if this church does not protect God's truth, they are putting at risk their full reward. One may ask, is John referring to eternal life, the reward of salvation? Is he saying, if the church does not protect God's truth, they are putting at risk their salvation? Absolutely not. Scripture is clear that a believer cannot lose their salvation. They are eternally secure in Christ. John quoted Jesus in John 10, 28, 29, when Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish no one, no deceiver, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. If you don't know that critical truth, you need to know it today, that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your eternity began with that profession of faith. You are secure in Christ for eternity. So, so John's not saying that. So, so what's he saying? So, some believe this full reward is just the completed work of what they're doing now with this church. That, that their full reward is to see this local church continue to grow in God's truth and, and to see God's work play out in their local body. That, that's a vital option. That's a viable option. That could be what John is saying here. Most commentators believe, though, that's not what John is referring to. John says full reward or complete reward. So what is he actually talking about? Well, most often in Scripture, when this Greek word is used, it's the word misthos, which means wages or reward. It is often used in the New Testament 
to refer to rewards believers will receive when they stand at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of their life before God. Paul, while writing to Christians in Rome, includes himself when he says this in Romans chapter 10, 14. He says, for we, Paul says, me, all believers, we will stand before the judgment seat of God. And it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, all believers, will give an account of himself to God. The Greek word for judgment seat is the word bema. So sometimes you might have heard of called the bema seat of Christ. That's taken from this thing they used to have called the Isthmian Games, which was held in Corinth. Just kind of think of the Corinth Olympics. And at those games, there'll be athletes and musicians, and they would compete. And right in the Isthmian Games, there was this high place a seat called the Bema seat, and a judge sat there. And at the end of the games, the athletes would surround the Bema seat, and the judge would hand out rewards. It was a judgment of reward. That's where we get this judgment seat of Christ. It is very important to distinguish the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20 says there is a great white throne where one day those who never trust in Christ, an unbeliever, is going to stand before God and they will receive a judgment, not of reward, but a judgment of condemnation, a judgment of everlasting punishment. The judgment seat of Christ, completely different. It's for believers only. And it's a judgment of reward, not punishment. Salvation is not an issue at the Bema seat. A believer's past, present, and future sins are forgiven in Christ. God's word says that he remembers your sins no more. So, so that's not going to be talked about at the Bema seat. It is a place of judgment of reward. There's a mystery to this. We don't know what all these entail, these rewards. But all we know is this. God's word is clear that every believer one day will stand before God and give an account of their life to him. What we do matters to God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, whether we are at home or away, make it our aim to please him. For we believers must all appear before the bema seat of Christ, so each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or even. Paul says, because that fact that I'm going to give an account of my life to God, I'm doing everything I can to please him. The Bema seat is not a seat to shrink back. It's a motivation to follow him. To know that one day I'm going to give an account of my life to God. Go to verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. John here now seems to go back to a distinguish between these deceivers and true believers. 
He says, those who go on ahead uh, basically means to turn aside. John is saying false teachers are those who are not content within the confines of Scripture. They turn aside the teachings of Christ for something maybe they they say God revealed to them. Or, Or a new truth that they have, and they put aside the teachings of Christ, beginning with the root of our salvation, that God became man. And John is direct. He says, positionally, they do not have God. They were not believers in the first place. They were posers of truth. He says, opposite are believers who abide in, meaning they remain within the teachings of Scripture in the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ. And he says, positionally, they have the Father and the Son. That means God indwells within them. John takes this stuff so seriously, he ends this section emphatically by stating, false doctrine is so serious that if someone shows up at your church, someone shows up at your door carrying heresy, don't even think of showing them hospitality. Look at verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Traveling teachers and preachers, they were a regular phenomenon in the first century church. And Christian ethics stated that if a Christian preacher, teacher came to you, you would show them hospitality. You would host them. Well, when it comes to false teaching, John says, don't even greet them. In our modern mind, John's comments may seem rigid or harsh. That's because modern inclination is to be tolerant of religious differences. But New Testament writers like John does not, did not share that view of tolerance. They knew the commitment that God desired for his truth and the effect of just the slightest false teaching sneaking in and slipping into a local body. So John strongly denounces them. He says, if a teacher shows up at your door and does not bring sound doctrine with him in his baggage, don't even greet him. Show him no hospitality. Okay. I was thinking through and thinking, wow, Lord, a nice soft message for Mother's Day, right? (laughs) But as we know, God's truth applies to everything in our lives. So here we go. Three application points today for our church. One, for every individual here as a believer, and two, for the church as a whole. Here's the first thing we learned from 2 John. Everything you do matters to God. Everything you do matters to God. Make it your aim to please him. John says and reminds us, that one day we are going to give an account of our lives before God. That means he cares and pays attention to everything you do. There's two ways to approach that truth. You can either shrink back and say, yikes, God is looking at everything I do, and I have to give an account as a follower of Christ to him one day of how I lived this life, or... You can say, God loves me so much that when I trusted in his son, he didn't become disinterested in my life. 
but instead he cares about everything I do. There is nothing too small or minuscule in my life that he's not watching over it nor caring about it. I related this to my mom this week. I was with her this week, and I related it to her motherhood. I am blessed, as I know a lot of people are not as blessed as I was, to have a mom who didn't just give me birth and say, I'm disinterested in your life, but she looked over and cared about everything her three boys did. She was at every sporting event. She helped us with homework. She made sure our butts were in the pews at church. And when we would do family devotions, my mom would lead the time of singing. And she would often lead us in hymns together. And as a young boy, I'll never forget her leading uh, the good hymn, Majesty, over and over again. That the, the words are ingrained in my head. Majesty, worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise. My mom's care of every detail in my life greatly affected me. She disciplined me. She would probably say I was the worst one of the three boys. She would probably admit that. She kept me accountable. And when I look back on my life as a young boy and child and teenager, my mom's love and care of every detail in my life actually motivated me to obey her. I desired to please my mom because I knew how much she cared about me and the way she paid attention to everything in my life. So think about it. If we desire that same focus, attention, and accountability for our earthly mother or father, why would we ever not want that from our heavenly father? That he says, when you trusted in my son, I didn't say, all right, you're, you're good. I don't really care what you do from now on. No, no, no. He, he says, you're my child. You're my child. Everything you do matters to me. The way you act as a husband, mother, employee, citizen, neighbor, brother or sister in Christ to your church family. I care about that stuff. I want to keep you accountable in your life. And I've given my spirit that dwells within you to empower you to follow me. God says, everything you do matters to me. That's pretty amazing. The God of the universe says, everything you do matters to me. Moms, that means God right now is observing you and how you raise your children. Are you building them up on the foundation of God's word and God's love for them? Or are you raising them with just the temporary stuff of this world. I think veteran moms who are here today at our campuses would probably tell you this. One day, when you look back on your life, you'll realize what was most important was not so much something you did, but someone you raised. Your children, how you raised them in the love of God and how God views them. John says, everything we do matters to God. Therefore, protect his truth. Hold fast to his word. Next, let's look at uh, two things for the church as a whole. Second John makes it clear 
that this thing of protecting God's truth is the responsibility of every local church. That means the Bible chapel, we own this responsibility, not as lone rangers, but as a united church to protect his truth. Going back to verse 8, again, John says, watch yourselves so that we may not lose what we have worked for. John viewed the actions of these believers in this local church as something that affected not only them, but him. He viewed himself as a co-laborer with this local church. This reminds us that our actions as believers affects not only us individually, it reflects the body. We're in this together. Therefore, John is giving a charge here as a united front to be committed to aid one another, to support one another, to encourage one another, to keep one another accountable in God's truth. That it is our responsibility together as one church to protect the truth of God. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What we're doing right now as a church is critical. Gathering together, worshiping God together, and protecting God's truth together. May we be a church, the Bible chapel, that when that day, meaning when Christ returns, when we stand before God, yes, as individuals, but as one church, we can say, man, the Bible chapel, we protected God's truth. We lived according to his word. One more. John also shows us that protecting God's truth is an urgent issue. And we know today this is a next generation issue. John was proactive in his letter. He says that he longs to meet with them, longs to visit this church, but he couldn't wait. This heresy was relevant that day. So he wrote them this letter with urgency. Man, are we a proactive church and not reactive to this area of protecting God's truth in our lives and in the influence that we have over the next generation? I mentioned this last week. But we are living in the day and age of Generation Z. People kind of get focused on millennials and they forget that generation kind of has passed and moved into adulthood. Now it's Generation Z. And according to his book, James Emery White, he says Generation Z, which is 1995 to 2010. So if you have an 8-year-old to 24-year-old, they are Generation Z. They're growing up in the first post-Christian generation. Here's what that means. They are the first generation that less than 50% of their group are churched. Less than 50% of Gen Z even attend church. And only 78% of them believe in that a God exists. By 2020, Gen Z will make up roughly 40% of all consumers in our nation. They will not simply influence American culture. They will dictate and represent American culture. Even companies, businesses are realizing they're behind the ball with Gen Z. Forbes magazine in February published an article saying, gear up for Gen Z, and here's what they end with. With all that said, the biggest takeaway is to get started with Gen Z now. 
Employers took years to understand the millennial generation and how they were changing the workforce. Well, Gen Z is here. And if companies don't start experimenting with them now, they will end up being blindsided in the exact same way. Well, more important than the workforce, how is the church preparing and being proactive about the next generation? We as a church take this seriously, and we know a lot of you do as well. I want you to see a quick clip here in a minute of Dave and Missy Welker. They are members of our church. They attend here in the South Hills, and they have a passion. They have a passion to see our church be those who are going to lead the way to not just reach next generation Gen Z, but to be prepared to help parents. Because parents, sometimes you feel like you're on an island raising your children. The questions they face, the things they're experiencing. And man, the church should be the place that provides the avenue to support you, to encourage you, and to help you. Check out this video from Dave and Missy. Hi, I'm Dave. <laughs> Hi, I'm Missy. And we're, we're the, the Welkers. Welkers. <laughs> the parenting now is not parenting the way my mom and dad did it. If, if I'm parenting the way my mom and dad did it, I, I'm missing the boat. That ship has sailed. And my mom and dad did a great job. I mean, they raised a great kid, you know? So, <laughs> so, so, but I think the issues that our kids are, are being faced with, be it uh, something to do with bullying or um, your identity or just being a Christian in general, they, they're called to account. I know I'm called, uh, I've been called uh, to account here the last couple of weeks on several different occasions at work where I've had to be able to, to articulate in gentleness and in kindness and in love um, in 1 Peter 3.15. Be able to give an account for what you believe, and but when you do that, be gentle and do it in love. And I think that our kids are now, earlier and earlier and earlier, being challenged to, whether it be on social media or whether it be in the lunchroom or whether it be in the classroom, they're, they're, they're challenged much earlier and, and much more strongly now. Like to echo a little bit of what Dave said about um, it's not the same generation we grew up in. You know, I, I've heard it called the post-Christian generation. I think um, Dave mentioned that last weekend. And it, it's because we don't have, you know, I think in our day we had teachers that supported the same values that our kids were seeing at home, we're seeing at church. And that's not, the world we live in anymore. So um, it's really made me have to say, how do I defend this? Like I think in a lot of respects, I don't know that I could give the great answer. So if I can't give the great answer in gentleness and kindness, how can I expect my children to do that? So I really have to equip myself so I'm able to, to pass that along to them. And you know, I, I don't want to assume that I have that information. Like I think sometimes we th assume our kids have it too, but they're being challenged, questioned, and, and they're questioning themselves. Like, and there's a, there should be a safe place to have those doubts and to have that, that wrestle with the Bible and wrestle with God to understand it completely. So I feel like um, we just really have to, to equip ourselves. And like Dave said, I mean, I'm forever listening to podcasts and apologetics things because I feel like we have to have those, you know, weapons and, and again, adding the prayer to all that and asking people to pray for that and, and really helping these, this generation just 
be ready because it, they're facing it so much earlier than I think previous generations did. So we are committed and passionate about this area of protecting God's troop and equipping our church to protect God's truth. That I mentioned last week, this summer, we are kicking off this initiative with a summer series called Relevant Faith. It's going to be a six-part series where every campus will have our teenagers, our student ministry will not be on their own. They will be with the adults in the worship center as we hit six top questions of our day. We're going to talk about things like, is there really such a thing as absolute truth? It starts there. Is this thing reliable? Is there really such a thing as absolute truth? Does God exist? Does God actually exist? Does his universe, not just scripture, does the science, the scripture, does, does God's creation cry out that there's a creator? Why evil and suffering in the world? How does that happen with a sovereign, loving God? We're going to hit these big questions and address them. And we want to use this series just as a launching pad for a bigger initiative across our church to equip one another in God's truth. We've been starting some meetings that in the fall we will be offering on our campuses relevant parenting groups, places where you can come and not feel alone, where you can discuss and have fellowship and be equipped to answer the questions that either your kids have already brought to you or they will bring to you. We're going to be offering apologetic classes across our campuses, and we're going to help adults equip you for the things, as Dave said, he's, he's being held account in his workplace. Feel equipped and ready to answer these questions of truth. And something we're really excited about, we just started working this month, is we're relooking at our scope and sequence of our children and student ministry across our campuses. From kindergarten to 12th grade, how are we equipping our children and teenagers with the fundamental truths of God's word? And at the appropriate stage of every life, weaving in apologetics, the issues they are facing and will face. We want to be proactive with our kids. We don't want to hear it the first time they come to us. Be proactive and understanding how God's truth is the answer to the issues they're facing. We are so excited for this. We, we think, how, how awesome would this be when someone visits our church and they go to one of the campus pastors and Ron and I are going to start leading the Connect classes here. We, we can go before parents and say, if you come to the Bible chapel, and for those who call this place home, here's exactly how we are going to develop your child. Here's exactly how we are going to teach your child and teenagers the truth of God's word and aid you as a parent in the issues they face today. John says protecting God's truth is an urgent matter. And we own this. And we want to do this together. So we've been asking you, for a couple surveys the last few months, I have one more for you that we are asking parents to take part of. Over the next month, there is a little longer of a survey for you, 10, 15 minutes max. And in the survey, it will have specific areas for you to say how old your kids are, what are the issues you're facing, what are the topics you would like help in and aid in in shepherding your children. You can get it online at biblechapel.org parents. 
at every campus. It is at your starting point table, hard copies, or your information desk. We have hard copies here today if you want a hard copy because we want to hear from you. We want to do this together. What are the areas we can come together as a church and be proactive in protecting the truth of God? We want to leave a legacy to our next generation that we did everything we can. We know only God can grab a child's heart. We know only God can grab a teenager's heart. But, man, we did everything we could to instill in them the truth of God's word, to equip parents and adults and grandparents to lead the next generation, that they will say not just through words but through action. The Bible chapel demonstrated to me what it means to be a church who loves one another in truth and protects God's truth. And it starts in the home. And we know the responsibility you all have as mothers in your home. Today, we're going to end our service with a time of prayer, not just for mothers. We want to pray over all our women. I want to invite Melissa Arabia here down in the South Hills who oversees our uh, children's ministry here. Becky Reed is coming in Washington. She's coming up front. Kat Wilbrink is coming up in Robinson. Val Madorma is coming up in Ross Draver. Uh, Susan Curra is coming. Sharon Curra is coming up in Wilkinsburg. And Brenda Taylor in DeBerry. And these women leaders are going to pray for the women across our church. So I want to invite all women up front. I know that might stretch some of you. And I know way up there you have a longer road to travel to get up here. But uh, I want to cut to the campuses and allow them to do this. All women, come on, please stand up, come up front. Get as close as you can get to Melissa. Come on up. Thank you. We will give a minute or so for the, the women to get up front here. And again, Melissa is going to lead us in a time of prayer. Um, for moms, but really all the women of our church. And we praise God for each and every one of you. If you are able to come up front, please too. And men, as they are coming up front, I'm going to ask that you stand in support of them. If you're able, come on up front and surround them, but I know we're going to be tight. So please, men, just stand as we pray for the women of our church. And after Melissa's prayer, uh, we're going to just turn around and look at the, the screen together, and we're going to sing out a chorus together. It'd be pretty cool. As, as we're up front before God, uh, Susie and Kirk are going to lead us through one final chorus before we close today's service. But I want to hand this off to Melissa now. And Melissa, will you please play for the women of our church? Will you please bow your heads in prayer with me? Dear Father, we thank you so much for the gift of motherhood. We are so thankful that you know the deepest parts of our hearts. And I pray right now for every woman in this room that you would meet her in the midst of her circumstances. Father, please give her the strength, wisdom, and courage to be the mom that you have called her to be. I pray for the new moms. I pray for those who are are expecting that they would prosper in their new role of motherhood. I pray that you would come alongside those moms who are raising children on their own. 
Father, for those moms who have adult children who are about to become empty nesters, I pray that you would build strong relationships and close friendships between mother and child. And for those that may have a strained relationship with their child, I pray for restoration. Father, for those who desire to be a mom and that desire has not been fulfilled, I pray that you would fill the empty places in their heart. And Father, for those who mourn the loss of a child, may you comfort their pain. For those who secretly grieve an abortion, Father, may they accept the fullness of your forgiveness and know your care. For those caring for their moms as their moms once cared for them, I pray that you would equip them for this season. And Father, for those who are missing their moms, I pray that you would fill their hearts and minds with sweet memories, especially today. Father, may we be godly women who serve as examples to the children who watch us. May we be united as sisters in Christ, united as a body of believers that encourage one another, support one another, build one another up in the truth and love of Jesus Christ. It is in his holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.